It's good to see all of you here. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you would, grab your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we continue to work through the book of Ephesians in our series that we have entitled Basic Christianity, the core basic elements that make up the Christian faith. We are working our way through the very intensely practical section of this book, the actual kingdom ethic that belongs to those who claim kingdom citizenship. We come to Ephesians 5. I want us to read verses 1 through 7. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But fornication and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is a fornicator or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them. Let us pray. Lord God, as we sit with open Bibles, we pray that you would open our hearts and that our hearts opened would receive your word, that it would be planted deeply within us, that by your word, with the Holy Spirit within us, you would change and shape our lives so that we look more and more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we see, Paul is continuing to expound what this new kingdom ethic looks like, what it looks like to live in Christ's kingdom, in God's kingdom. There are certain behaviors, certain actions, certain attitudes that are to be avoided at all costs by Christians. Paul says here, they shouldn't even be named among you. They're out of place in a Christian life. Now, at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul continues to provide that very practical guidance. It reaches down into our everyday life, touches on sins that, you know how we do from time to time, is we break down sins. There are some sins that are light sins, and then there are other sins that are heavy sins. There are small sins and there are big sins. And Paul says all of it is sin and none of it has any place in the Christian's life. Kingdom citizens should seek to rid themselves 
of all impurity. That is the ongoing process of sanctification. It is a process which, on this side of eternity, unfortunately, will never be complete, and yet it is something that is ongoing and progressive. We are learning to sin less, though we're always at war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Only when we are in glory, in our new glorified bodies, in the presence of God, in heaven, will we be completely free from all sin, and our sanctification is complete. Long for that day, and until that day, we are putting sin to death. I've quoted it last week. I will continue to quote my favorite Puritan, John Owen, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So, here in chapter 5, verses 1 and following, we have the exhortation to a pure walk, that living with Christ requires that we do put away impure and immoral behaviors. But we notice the positive aspect of this. It is rooted in being imitators of God. It is rooted in the gospel. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It is a life which manifests itself with thanksgiving. Verse 1 begins, therefore, showing us that this is connected to the foregoing. What Paul has just written Uh, what we saw there in verses 17 through 32 about uh, no longer doing the things that belong to the former life. We put off the old self. We are renewed in the spirit of our minds and we are putting on the new self with all the distinguishing characteristics and qualities that go along with a new Christian life. And it's right down to stuff like how do you handle anger? You got to tell the truth. You are uh, someone who watches the things that come out of your mouth because that's a reflection of your heart. Uh, You are are seeking to even put to rest all anger and wrath and and malice, that ill will. Uh, None of that should be marked. In fact, you are to, uh, none of that should mark your life. In fact, your life should be marked by compassion and forgiveness that's rooted in love because God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, Be imitators of God. That's the exhortation. And right here, immediately, we are confronted with a challenge which is unlike any other that you find in Scripture. It's true, you get things like, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. But this, of being an imitator of God, is truly the height of the Christian ethic. Now, this high and lofty calling is something that we we do need to be careful in uh, distinguishing here because there are certain aspects of God we can't imitate. Uh, Historically, these have come to be known as what are called incommunicable attributes of God. In other words, there are attributes of God that belong exclusively to Him and He didn't share it with anybody. Things like self-existence. We we are not self-existent beings. We are contingent beings. We are dependent upon God for everything. God exists by Himself and for Himself and needs nothing. He is related to that self-sufficient. Again, we depend upon God for everything. He depends upon no one for anything. He is self-sufficient in Himself. Other, all the omni-characteristics, omnipresent. You can't be everywhere at all times. God can, though. Omnipotence, right? His all, being all-powerful. You don't have all power. God does, though omniscient. We don't know everything, but God does. 
So there are these, again, incommunicable attributes which belong exclusively to God, but that's not what we're called to imitate. Contextually, Paul is rooting this in characteristics like how God is compassionate. He is a compassionate God, and we are to imitate that and be compassionate as He is. Forgiveness. God is a God who forgives sins, and as God has forgiven us, we need to be people who forgive others. And then, of course, love. The very next verse says, walk in love. Well, God is a loving God, and so we need to imitate His love. These are the attributes. These are the characteristics that we are to imitate, again, contextually. Forgiveness, love, compassion, self-sacrifice. Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, that we're called through the gospel to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ, which is we're following Him to Jerusalem to die to ourselves. But we engage in that self-sacrifice for others. Okay? All of the, These are the attributes. These are the, the qualities and characteristics that belong to God that we are to imitate. Okay? The imitators of God. And you know, to follow Christ, that just means that we're to imitate God. But the call to imitate God is also a call to holiness, that we are to be holy in our conduct. And again, Paul is going to get very specific here. But it's, it's, it's part of the larger theme of this epistle that connects back to 2 and verse 10. We are His workmanship. You're the masterpiece of God created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see, you've been saved by grace through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of your own works that you should boast. And since you've been saved, you've been saved to serve God. And you are to engage in good works. These good works God prepared beforehand, before even time began, that we should walk in them. Well, guess what? Here's walk again in verse 2. Walk in love. This is what it means to live the Christian life. We have this obligation to live according to this holy calling that God Himself has called us to. Back to 4 verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There it is. That's what Paul is breaking down for us here. And don't overlook this, uh, 5 verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That alone, first of all, you get to call God your father. You are His child. The God, by the way, that because of your sin, you offended And He had every right to visit upon you justice. But instead, He's been gracious and merciful. The the grace and the mercy of God is beyond measure. And now, you're no longer an enemy. You're a child of God. And you're also a beloved child. He loves you with an incredible love. A love that, again, is beyond description. God says, I have loved you with an eternal love, a love that is beyond time. And He manifests it supremely in the cross. You want to know God loves you? Look at Jesus on the cross. And and without a doubt, God loves you. He loves me with this incredible love. And so we are exhorted as beloved children to walk in love. We are to, as one writer said, let every act of life be dictated by love to God and to our fellow human beings. You walk in in this uh, 
it's as if everywhere you go, you are spreading this atmosphere of love. Uh, and it, 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 it uh, bleeds into every aspect of your life. But notice this love is not just some nebulous, undefined love, kind of like what you find in culture today. You know, love is love. Well, not so fast. This love here is defined because it's rooted in the gospel. Walk in love as Christ loved us. There it is. There's the gospel. How much did Christ love us? How about from before time began and before the foundation of the world, Christ willingly determined, the second person of the Godhead determined, I will be the one who dies in their place. And then in the course of time in human history, the second person of the Godhead leaves heaven, veils his divinity by taking on flesh, living among us the life that you and I could never live, which is sinless perfection, and then again going to the cross, willingly dying in your place and mine for our sins. More than that, raised from the dead on the third day, ascended back to the Father's right hand, and with the Father sending His Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Christ, His love, that's the model. And it's also connected to his, the giving, of, uh, giving up of Himself. He gave Himself up. There's the self-sacrificial nature of the, 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 the atonement that Christ makes on the cross. He lays down His life on the altar of the cross. He gave Himself up for us. That is in our place, on our behalf. That's the great exchange that takes place. When you look to the cross and you see Christ on the cross, you should see he, that's where you belong. You belong on the cross for your sins, but Christ has taken your place. He has substituted Himself. More than that, all of your sin is placed upon Him as your sin bearer. That is how God is able to forgive you of all of your sin, every last one of your sins. All of it washed away by the shed blood of Christ on the cross. It is this love that, that has an object in mind. The objective of the love of Christ is that you and I would look like Him. And part of what it means to look like Him is the complete abandonment of sin, the complete renunciation of sin. We want nothing to do with it. We want to live holy lives before God. This is why He came. This is why the Father sent Him. God so loved the world, period? No, it goes on. God so loved the world, He gave His unique Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God's love, it cost Him His Son. The love of Christ cost Him His life but He gladly and willingly paid the price for you and for me. Paul connects us here to the sacrificial system. Christ is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Two aspects of this. First of all, a fragrant offering. <clears throat> and under the law, you dig back into Leviticus chapters 1, 2, 3. This language of fragrant offering, a sweet savor or a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. This was connected to the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. 
these were all offerings that you offered to God once you'd offered the sin offering to deal with all your sin. Now that sin has been dealt with, I can offer this pure worship to God, which is the burnt offering and the peace offering and the grain offering. And these get smoked to God, and it is this sweet, it's as if God, He in heaven, smells the aroma and goes, ah, fellowship, communion with my people. This is a beautiful thing. Christ fulfills all of those sacrifices. Christ is our burnt offering. Christ is our peace offering. Christ is our grain offering. And it is His offering, and I believe this speaks to the the life of Christ. His whole life is one big burnt offering to God. You see, if God were to, as it were, smell the offering of your life, He would recoil and, ah, wretch, and uh, because of sin. But guess what? God doesn't look upon our life. He looks upon the life of Christ. He sees Christ's life in our place, and He says, ah, yes, that is, that is a sweet savor. More than that, Christ is a sacrifice to God, and the sacrifice language here, I believe, points to the sin offering. That when Christ goes to the cross and He lays His life on the altar of the cross, He is making the sin offering for us. The sin offering is nowhere called a fragrant offering. It is not a sweet smell. You know why? It's because you're dealing with sin. But sin must be dealt with, and Christ deals with our sin to the fullest extent on the cross. All of our sin dealt with in Jesus. He is making sacrifice for sin on the cross. When He sheds His blood, when He dies on the cross, He is, well, He's the the better sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews talks about this, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23, that Christ is our better sacrifice, better than any uh, lamb or goat or whatever was prescribed in the law for a sacrifice of sin. Christ is better. More than that, see, Christ is not only the, the sacrifice, He's not only the offering, He's the offerer. Christ is our great high priest who makes the offering to God. We're told in the book of Hebrews that he actually takes his blood into the heavenly, holy sanctuary, the tabernacle, the better temple of God in heaven, and presents his blood as our great high priest. All of this, again, is that Christ, what Paul is emphasizing here, Christ is not just one sacrifice. He fulfills every last sacrifice under the law. When a Jewish person at any point under the law, whenever they would go to the tabernacle or to the temple and they would offer a sin offering or a burnt offering or a peace offering or a grain offering, whenever they brought that offering in, they offered it by faith looking forward to the sacrifice that would be made that would fulfill all sacrifices, one time for all time. We no longer make sacrifices. We don't offer the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the grain offering. You know why? We look back by faith to the one who offered the one sacrifice for all time. And it points backward, it points forward in time, and it covers all the sins of God's people for all time. This is the beauty and fullness of the gospel. And don't miss this. It is because of all of this in the gospel that we are exhorted to be imitators of God and walk in love. This is how the gospel reaches right down into our everyday life, eats our lunch every day of the week, 
This is what the gospel does. It impacts. It has an impact upon. Because Christ has done all this, because God in Christ has forgiven us completely, you need to be compassionate, you need to be forgiving, you need to walk in love, all these things. All of this is in view. Now, having, and, and it really is, I mean, I've talked about before how sometimes the, the chapter breaks, the verse numbers, they can kind of interrupt things. And that kind of happens here because of that therefore at the beginning of 5 verse 1. This is continuing the thought from verse 32 of chapter 4 where we are to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And it's as if Paul, talking about the forgiveness of God in Christ, says, you know what? I need to break that down a bit more. You see, we are therefore to be imitators of God as beloved children, and we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Paul is linking all of this moral instruction, the kingdom ethic, to what Christ does in the gospel. And now we continue in verse 3 with more, again, very plain, very explicit uh, instruction concerning this new kingdom ethic. But fornication, this is all unlawful sexual activity. God has specifically designed that sex be reserved exclusively for marriage. The marriage bed is to be kept holy. Therefore, all forms of sexual expression outside of marriage are unlawful. They are wrong. They are sinful. Emphasis on all. That's right, because it not only captures heterosexual, it also captures homosexual, it captures incestual, it captures bestial, every last bit of it. All of that, well, Paul says, that must not be named among you, among the saints of God. It has no place. He connects us also to all impurity and covetousness. This is, by the way, this is where our skeptical friends would probably jump in here and say something like, see, you Christians, all, all you guys talk about, all you're concerned with these days is sex. Well, we are equal opportunity offenders with the gospel, and so, I mean, that's the nature of that's the nature of proclaiming the gospel. You see, if if I preach against stealing, I offend the thief. If I preach against uh, covetousness, I offend the greedy person. If I preach against uh, falsehood, I offend the liar. If I preach against fornication. Well, I offend the sexually immoral person and the adulterer and everybody else. Okay? That is the nature of faithfully proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And so, all impurity, here the word has to do with, it's, it's a kind of a general term, all impure, all immoral uh, behavior. It could be, since it's in the context of fornication, it could be related to uh, impure sexual activity as well. Uh, but uh, all of it here, all impurity, must not be named, and also covetousness. Hello, American Western Christian. This, this is where we live a lot of the times, right? This, this, is, uh, this is, what was his name? Uh, Gordon Gecko, was that his name in 
Oh, what's that movie? Oh, boy, I just had it. Greed is good, right? That was, that was the mantra in that movie. And that's, that's what a lot of, that's the American dream. Go, check, go get whatever you want. More, 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 and accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And here Paul is saying, covetousness, which is greediness, that has no place in the Christian's life. Just like uh, these other things, you need to be a person who champions and upholds, whether it's the sexual ethic or the purity ethic, you need to be a person who has a proper recognition of the, all those good material blessings that God gave you. You understand, I only have what I have because God has been gracious and has gifted me that. And it is incumbent upon me with all these good gifts to recognize and realize how can I press them into service for God and for His kingdom. The house you have, the car you have, the clothes on your back, the money in your bank account, all of it has been gifted to you by God to use for His service. And so, uh, again, when, when we talk about behaviors and actions and attitudes, greed starts in the mind. Covetousness. That is, that's, that's, that's your thought patterns, right? Uh, how you think and how you look upon these things and, and that, that desire for more, more, more. Yes, there are disordered desires that need to be abandoned. And th that's true whether we're talking about disordered desires when it comes to sexual ethics or whether it comes to disordered desires when it comes to covetousness and things like that. All disordered desires need to be abandoned. They must not, Paul says here, they must not even be named among you. It is you engage in those things, it's contradictory to your claim to be following Christ. It goes against the claim God has upon your life. They must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Do you realize who you are? O Holy One, and we are the Holy Ones of God. We are the saints of God. And as a saint, that means, and by the way, it's not just, you know, super Christians who are saints and you've been beatitized, and therefore you're a saint. All Christians are saints. Uh, we believe in the universal priesthood of the body. Every last one of you, brother, sister, you're a saint of God. You have been set apart by God for holy, special service in His kingdom. Live like it. That's what Paul is saying here. Live in that way. Keep in mind, Paul is writing to a first century Christian church about these things. Whether it's the, the sexual ethic or whether it's covetousness or impurity. Uh, Paul is saying to the church, you do not adopt the lax ethical standards that are present around you in the world. You have a different code of conduct. You have a different morality than what the world calls good or evil or any of that stuff. Your morality your standard of conduct comes straight from what God calls you to as a Christian, as a saint of God. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The church is still surrounded by a culture and a society which wants to loosen, loosen things up, right? And just, oh, Christians are all stuffy and all that. Well, um, no, it is that we love God we love our fellow human beings, our neighbors, 
And because of that, and because we, we do actually have a definition of love, which isn't just this nebulous love is love or whatever, because we have properly defined categories, we live in a certain way. And our society, again, we're still surrounded by uh, a society that has lax moral standards, and we are not called to just be a chameleon and blend in. We are still called to be holy today. So verse 4, let there be no filthiness. Uh, your translation may say vulgar speech. Again, this, right, see how practical this is. It comes right down to the things that you say, the things that come out of your mouth. This is the kind of talk uh, and even behavior, generally speaking, when it comes to filthiness. Uh, a morally sensitive person would be ashamed of that stuff. right? Uh, and so... Uh, Filthiness or vulgar speech, it is in the context of, the next thing, foolish talk. Oh boy. Got me. Guilty, right? Foolish talk. How, how many things come out of my mouth? It's just foolish. It's just, it's, it's just stupid. Shouldn't have said that. That was foolish. That was dumb, right? It's, it's the, the kind of talk. It actually describes the kind of talk that a drunk person would say. Uh, it was, it's senseless, right? you know, and all that, right? That a drunk person comes, it's unprofitable. It doesn't help. It doesn't build up. It's foolish talk. And then crude joking, or your translation may say coarse jesting. It's the kind of joking that includes uh, double entendres, right? You know what I mean? Um, it's, the, it's the obscene references, Okay, uh, this all this talk, Paul says it's out of place. You know, even even non Christians. When a Christian starts talking this way, is like, um, what? I, I thought you were a Christian, and yet I'm hearing you say these. It must. It's out of place, and that's right. I got James three echoing in the back of my head right now. I can't can can the same spring bring out pure water and salt water? No, no. And in the same way, how can on the one hand, you're over here on Sunday praising God, praise the Lord, mm, I love the Lord, and then on Monday, those four-letter words are coming out, and uh, you, you know what I mean? And uh, That's out of place. Uh, by the way, let me just say, Crude joking, it is, it, it, this is not a permanent ban on all humor. We're not just these stoic robots that walk around, hey, brother, how, sister, how you doing, you know, and never have any fun. This is, not, this is not forbidding all humor. Notice it's crude. It's coarse joking. It's a, it's, it, um, you can be funny. You can be humorous without being vulgar or filthy or crude, Right? That is what is condemned here, is that crude joking, that foolish joking. That is what should be rejected here by Christians. Um, the, the kind of humor that plays with sin, okay? That's what is out of place here. There's no place for it. Instead, there should be thanksgiving. Uh, and, it, you know, we're, we're just days away from the holiday, right? Thanksgiving. Uh, 
but here's the thing. When your heart is absolutely captured by the grace of God, and you have that new heart which is actually enthralled with the will of God, what comes out of your mouth is praise and thanksgiving to God for what He has done to you and what He has done for you, how He has changed your life. And then this, this spills over and it has an effect where the things that come out of your mouth, instead of tearing others down and being unprofitable, well, it's, it's what we saw last week. It fits the occasion. It gives grace to those who hear. It's upbuilding. It's encouraging. It's, it's helpful to people. Uh, that's the kind of talk that should characterize Christians. Verse 5, you may be sure of this, or you know this with certainty. This is a rock-solid foundational truth that Paul is uh, uh, communicating here. That, again, these Christians, they already knew it. You already know this too, brothers, sisters, what Paul is going to say here. That if you continue in these kinds of activities, and he's going to once again name uh, fornication and impurity and covetousness. That's clear, he's clearly referring back to verse 3 there. That if you continue in fornication, impurity, and greed, Paul says that you are forfeiting your eternal inheritance. You don't have a share in, your, in that uh, eternal inheritance. Uh, this person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh, why it's, it's so vital that we give sober reflection and serious consideration to how we live our lives in this world. Now it's true. Paul says it elsewhere. The sins of some people, it's obvious. Right? They're, they're, they're known. It's, uh, everybody is, is aware of that. Other people, right? greed, right? That's, um, or also lust in the heart, right? That's that secret sin that you can just kind of savor, right? And just, no one needs to know about it. The reality is God knows about it. And, and, and just like all other sin, you need to kill that sin as well. It needs to be put to death. Because it's not just the open and well-known sins that can condemn a person. It's that secret sin, sin especially that no one else knows about that can just as easily... Uh, cause a person to lose that inheritance. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. There, by the way, just got to say this because our skeptical friends may jump on it. What are there, two rival kingdoms? God's got a kingdom in Christ? Not two rival kings with two rival kingdoms. It's a single kingdom. It's God's kingdom and Christ's kingdom. God's kingdom is Christ's kingdom. God has entrusted His kingdom to His Son, and it is Christ's kingdom as well. We see, again, at the heart of this is a changed life. It's, notice the connection to idolatry. Uh, their idols back then may have looked like birds, bears, and beasts. Ours are a little more subtle. Maybe they go vroom, vroom, or cha-ching, or something like that, right? Um, all of that idolatry, though, needs to be put off and put to death. Someone has said that the hope of the world is not new programs, it's new people. Christ, I've said it before, Christ, He came not to make good people better or bad people good. He came to make dead people live. That's what's at the heart of the gospel. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. See, here's the trick. Here's where Satan comes into the picture. 
and, and he'll get individuals to start saying things that aren't in keeping with God's Word. They will, they will say things about sin. It's, really, it's not, it's not really sin, right? Or, or somehow trying to uh, divorce the behavior or, or try and redefine the behavior as though Paul and really the Holy Spirit in back of Paul didn't have in mind the sins that we would be confronted with 2,000 years later, right? That's the, that's the empty words here that are deceptive. And again, deception has been a key theme as we've gone throughout these verses, hasn't it? About falsehood and how there are those deceptive teachings that are in the world. Here, Paul circles back to it. Uh, there were those who were saying all these various practices. They're not sinful. They're not really offensive to God. Right? You prude. You really think that's... That's a bad thing. No, no, you, you've got it all mixed up. The words of Christ, again, it's, it's echoing here from Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and verse 19. Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, there are those who will say, no, God, he, he's, he, won't, he won't punish, He won't uh, discipline sin, right? There will be those who want to deny that God even is wrathful against sin, despite the fact that it's all over the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's right here in verse 6. For because of these things, because of sin, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience, a clear echo from what Paul talked about back in chapter 2 as well, uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. That is a phrase. It doesn't describe the saved. It describes the lost. They're sons of disobedience. Again, they apparently had those in their day who were doing this. We have them in our day as well who want to redefine, who want to minimize sin, not call it sin. You, you, can, you can pull up the video clips of Joel Osteen being interviewed. I don't really like to use the word sin. It's let no one deceive you with empty words. Those, that's, that, those, those are empty words from a deceiver. That's what Paul says here. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience for sin, unless you be found as a son of disobedience. We must abandon these things, and we must seek to obey God in all ways. Therefore, verse 7, do not be partners with them. Do not share or partake in those practices. Peter tells us, the world, they're going to think it's strange that you don't rush in the, into the same flood of dissipation. That's okay. That's okay. Weird is good when it comes to the Christian ethic. That is what the world thinks is weird. And yet, it's just a normal Christian life. That's what we've been discussing as we've gone through these. As Paul described it, the normal Christian life. It is, again, what God calls us to. Let me just say this as well. Paul is making it clear here that grace is not an occasion to sin. We are not allowed to turn the grace of God into a license for sin. This is not, hey, I've been saved by grace. All the income free, I get to do whatever I want. That is, that's empty talk, all right? 
That's, that's foolishness. That's, de- that's deception. We've been saved by grace to serve our gracious God. Christ, we've made the good confession. Christ is Lord. Guess what? His Lordship covers every area and every aspect of our life to the way we behave, to the way we act, the actions we engage in, and even to the thoughts and attitudes that we have. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord God, it is a high and holy calling to which you have called us. May we live according to this holy calling. May we walk in a manner worthy of this calling. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to put to death the deeds of the body, but also that through your Spirit, you would grant new spiritual life to us that we might live for Christ in all things and in all ways. But may we never turn our record into some kind of cause for celebration, but may we always look to the fact that Christ's righteousness has been credited to us, and it is his perfect record that we are dependent upon. We commit all this to you, through the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.